Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome to our time of study in God's Word. This is study number 34 through this series of the book of Revelation And the title of our study today is The Mark of the Beast. And today we're going to look at Revelation 13, 1 through 18. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we are confronted today with a very challenging text that has so many difficulties. Lord, we we recognize that we are in need of your help. And I recognize, Lord, even in considering this passage, I'm not going to say everything that's that's there. (laughs) Because we could be here an awful long time. So, Lord, I pray that you would help what is said during this time to be helpful, to be edifying, to equip your people in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, to make much of the text and to point them to you, that they might be helped and find hope in Christ alone. We thank you, Lord, that you're a good God who loves us. So we pray now for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you be honored and glorified through this time. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. Revelation 13. 11 through 18. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. And then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. The movie Valkyrie tells the story of Major General Henning von Tresco and Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, two of the principal figures in the German conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Christians such as Tresco and Stauffenberg had come to recognize Hitler's beastly evil. Despite the oath of unconditional obedience that they had sworn to him as, as German supreme leader, Tresco began plotting Hitler's assassination early in the war. In 1941 and 1943, he put together murderer attempts that failed because of unexpected errors or sudden changes in Hitler's plans. In 1944, his best attempt on Hitler's life took place when Stauffenberg, 
A staff officer in the high command placed a briefcase bomb right under the dictator's feet. After Stauffenberg left the room, another officer moved the briefcase to the other side of the table. And when the bomb went off, the stout wood of the briefing table saved Hitler's life. Soon after, Stauffenberg and Trusco were both dead. These two Christians are worthy of admiration for their courage. We can sympathize with their frustration as God himself seemed to thwart their bloody efforts to remove a tyrant. And yet, if they had consulted the book of Revelation more carefully, they might have discovered reasons for God's refusal to help their conspiracy. You see, the Bible does not tell Christians who wage spiritual warfare against satanic powers of tyranny and deceit to respond with their own brand of deceit and terror. We may trust that Tresco and Stauffenberger were justified before God by the atoning blood of Christ. But declaring obedience to Hitler and then using positions of trust to attempt to murder him will find no endorsement in Scripture. In the long run, their achievements was not in killing a monstrous tyrant, but, in, but it's simply in being willing to face death as committed followers of Christ. That such heroic Christians struggle to respond biblically to a satanic beast like Hitler proves the Apostle John's words at the end of chapter 13 of Revelation. A struggle with the dragon and his beast calls for wisdom, Revelation 13.8 says. Now the first half of Revelation 13 shows that Satan is not alone in his dragon-like warfare against Christ's church. Summoning a beast from the sea, Satan gives him power to rule on the earth. The first beast represents government tyranny working in history against Christ and his church. And the second half of the chapter shows that this first beast is not alone. He is joined by a second beast who rises out of the earth, Revelation 13.11 says. And so if the beast represented the tyrannical power of Rome that arrived in Asia out of the sea, the beasts from the earth represent local forces that collaborated with Rome. If the sea beast stands for vicious tyranny, the land beast is the propagandist who encourages people to worship him. Revelation 16.13 identifies this second beast with the false prophet. And whereas the first beast relied on power, the second beast supports him with lies. J. Ramsey Michael says the relationship between the two beasts is like that between the state and the state church. The beast from the sea is the secular political power, while the beast from the earth is a religious institution fostering worship of the first beast. And so when we speak of false religion, we should refer to this in the broadest sense of all ideology that supports unbelief and even idolatry. Steve Wilmer sees this beast represented in the communism of the Soviet Union with its spectacular parades to the Red Square, its party card for the privilege. He is Nazism with its Nuremberg rallies and its Hitler youth. The statues of Saddam, with, which infested Iraq, the wall posters of Chairman Mao. We should add to this the biased media in America that covers up the horrors of abortion, ceaselessly promotes sexual immorality, and misses no opportunity to heap scorn on Bible-believing Christians. In fact, in describing the second beast, John reports that it had two horns, Revelation 13.11 says. And so we remember that this section of Revelation began with the vision of the church in the form of two witnesses who bear testimony to Christ in this age. They are slain by the beast, but they rise again, Revelation 11, 3-11 says. 
And so the false prophet is their satanically inspired counterfeit who combats the gospel with subtle philosophies and false religions that promote the cause of the beast and the dragon. Now the second beast exercises all the, the authority of the first beast in his presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, Revelation 13, 12 says. Now John would have known this beast in the form of the local prov provincial elites in city after city and province after province, who do their best not only to copy the monster at a local level, but they insist in order to keep the monster's favor that everyone in their dominion should worship the monster. Now because of Rome's success, the leaders of Asia could not do enough to placate, imitate, and honor the imperial Caesars. In fact, in many cases, it was not the emperor who demanded worship, but the local leaders who erected idols and temples to him, vying with one another for the privilege of the most fervent imperial idolatry to which they compelled their subjects. Now, not only do the two horns form a contrast with the image of the church as witnesses, but there is a clear parody of Christ. It had two horns like a lamb, Revelation 13.11 says. Christ rules for the good of his people with the spirit of grace. The false prophet comes across in this way, but his actual speech is like a dragon, Revelation 13.11 says. Here is a wolf in sheep's clothing about which Jesus warned us in Matthew 7.15, which teaches the doctrines of the world rather than the truths of God's word. And this reminds the people of God not to be taken in by the outward impression of public figures, but to carefully consider what they say and do in light of Scripture itself. The beast represents pastors, college professors, politicians, songwriters, or media pundits who cultivate a seductive image in order to gain a hearing for a satanic message. The second beast urges people to worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. This represents the world's false gospel of power and pleasure through rebellion to God. Now, in the garden, Satan beguiled Eve into sinning. The second beast speaks with the same sin-promoting and God-blaspheming voice, urging people to make their own Messiah, forge a sin-condoning salvation, and gain freedom through soul-destroying slavery to the beast. John forewarns that the false prophets will speak deceptively to lead people into serving the first beast in its tyranny. The second beast also employs signs and wonders in this same cause. Revelation 13, 13-14 says, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. See, magicians and their crafts were commonplace in the Asian provinces where John's readers lived, and their chief employers were provincial pagan temples. Craig Keener cites ancient uh, church sources who tell of moving statues, fireball explosions, and pagan magicians who would make idols to appear to speak. And so by these means, the second beast again parodies the witnessing church. Revelation 11 compared the church's witness to that of Moses and Elijah in Revelation 11:6. And now here, the miracles associated with the great Old Testament figures are counterfeited by the second beast. You see, Elijah, he cast down fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18, 37-39. And Moses performed many wonders in the presence of 
beastly Pharaoh in Exodus 7, 9 through 12. G.K. Beale says this, that the various pseudo-magical tricks, including ventriloquism, false lighting, and other phenomena were effectively used in the temples of John's time. Now, all through Revelation, those who dwell on the earth are people who live in sin and unbelief. In fact, the second beast deceives them into making an image for the beast, Revelation 13, 14 says. Most sophisticated ancient people did not believe that idols were themselves gods, but rather they thought them conduits by which the gods communicated with their servants. Through trickery and apparently by supernatural powers, the same was permitted to exert these wonders promoted the prestige of idol worship. And now John emphasizes the myth of the first beast being wounded by the sword and yet living, Revelation 13, 14 says. We've seen in our previous studies that the death and resurrection of the beast likewise glamorizes the renewal of Satan and Rome's power after the victorious first coming of Christ. With the pagan Rome flushed with victory and earthly power, the marvels displayed by pagan charlatans present a compelling image of deity that captivated many worldly people into false worship. Today, instead of cheap magic tricks, the advances of science and the achievements of government are hailed as proof of the false gospel of secular humanism. Vern Poitras says technology then becomes the worker of miraculous signs. Worship, the power of the beast, the power of the technocratic state organization, the power of the expert, because technology can work wonders like no one else. In the news broadcasts, in public schools, in, in movies, in television, a utopian message calls us to progress beyond the narrow thinking of Scripture, with its God, its salvation, and its holy lifestyle. Of course, they never point out that the reality of the society breakdown and the soul-crushing bondage of sin, since the false prophet's goal is the world's worship of a tyrannical beast and his slave master, Lord the Dragon. Paul Garner writes that man replaces God and Christ with himself, and in doing so, succumbs to the full deception of the beast. The beast from the earth serves the beast from the sea by false teaching and deceptive signs and wonders. And it can hardly be said to exercise the beast's authority if it did not also employ deadly compulsion and persecution. Now this is a third approach by which the second beast advances the worship of the first beast and the dragon. It persuades its followers to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain, Revelation 13, 15 tells us. And it furthermore causes everyone to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell until he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name, Revelation 13, 16 through 17 tells us. Now, in writing to Pergamon, Jesus notes that a Christian named Antipius had already been slain for his faith in Revelation 2.13. And so murder was, was done by local authorities who wanted to display loyalty to Caesar and zeal for his cult. And so the, the situation is similar today in northern Nigeria and the Middle East, where fanatical Muslims show their zeal for Allah by bombing Christian churches and beheading converts to Christ. The point is not that all Christians are slain under the influence of the second beast, but that worshipers of the false religion will often display their zeal with violence against true religion. 
Along with deadly force, the beast also enforces false worship by requiring everyone to receive the mark of the beast. And so John states that, that all face this requirement, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, Revelation 13, 16 tells us. No class of person can evade the obligation displaying allegiance and submission to the state tyranny of the first beast. Popular end times books describe the mark of the beast as something yet to appear, often a technology to implant a computer chip that would control all commerce. There are abundant reasons, though, to believe that John is referring to a phenomenon common to his own age. The Greek word for mark is chargama. It's a term used for the emperor's seal on official documents. In this light, the mark of the beast alludes to the state's political and economic stamp of approval given only to those who go along with its religious demands. In the Roman world, slaves were sometimes tattooed on the forehead to mark their ownership, and so the beast marks claim those who worship him as their property. Soldiers receive marks on the hand to show their allegiance to a certain general. Likewise, the mark of the beast shows one's devotion as a follower. Now, John uses these examples from his own culture to make the point about what the mark of the beast involves. Deuteronomy 6.8 tells God's people to bind God's word on their hands and before their eyes, the point of which is that we are to think and to act biblically. Likewise, the beast demands not so much a tattoo on the forehead, but a mind that thinks the way that he says to think. He does not care about brands on the hands so much as deeds that mimic his own evil ways. These examples show us that the mark of the beast is not something that one accidentally takes. Primarily, it's the formal acceptance of the total allegiance to a person or to an earthly entity, running a devotion that only God deserves to receive. This allegiance will usually be marked with some formal recognition such as a Nazi armband, or earn special privileges, such as those given to Communist Party members in China. A notable example is recorded in the intertestamental book of Third Maccabees, which records how the Egyptian tyrant Polymi Philopater demanded that the Jews offer pagan sacrifices. Those who refused were put to death. Those who relented were branded with an ivy leaf symbol for Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and sensual indulgence. Bearing this mark afforded Jews all the privileges and citizenship in Potomi's kingdom. And while receiving the beastly mark is never an accident, the process may be subtle. The aristocrat officers of the German army did not vow unconditional loyalty to Adolf Hitler because they admired him. Many of them were motivated by patriotism and career ambitions. And later they felt trapped by their oath into committing atrocities that they never themselves knew would bring ruin to their country. In America today, business people may sell their souls to the company out of lust for success. Some people fail to profess faith in Christ because of loyalty to family expectations. Some youth wear the tattoos of a street gang or of a rock group that they religiously follow, starring heart and soul to the gang or the arm brand or to the subculture. Ultimately, though, the mark of the beast involves a choice between the world and Christ. There's an obvious contrast here between the mark and the mark that Christ's people received in Revelation chapter 7. And therefore, there, suffering believers were sealed on their forehead as the servants of God, Revelation 7 3 says. And having already been 
uh, sought counterfeit Christ, Satan now to counterfeit Christ, Satan now parodies God's sealed church with his own mark-bearing legions. You see, in John's day, the mark of the beast provided another way to persecute Christians. Revelation 13, 7 says, No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. The Christians in the church at Pergamon did not join trade guilds without accepting idol worship and the cultic prostitution, Revelation 2, 14 tells us. This practically meant that Christians there could not hold well-paying jobs. Christian business people today may be, or excuse me, Christian businesses today may be closed down for refusing to fund abortion through their insurance. Christian military officers may forfeit promotion because they refuse to hide their faith. The point is, is that the beast paints Christians as being disloyal to the governing regime because of our higher allegiance to Jesus Christ. And as a result, Christians are forced to the periphery of public life, unable to be elected to office or to operate small businesses. In the same world where the emperor's certificate was required at the marketplace, the beast might literally reduce believers to starvation. In Revelation 2.9, Jesus said that he was aware of what his people were suffering. And Revelation 2.10 says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. How relevant are those words to so many Christians who lose out in this present world for the sake of Christ, but gain an inheritance and glory with him in the world to come? Now, John concludes this dramatic chapter with the point of this teaching in Revelation 13:8, which we begin with. This calls for wisdom. Looking back to chapter 12 with the vision of the dragon and at war with the church, and then in chapter 13 with the tyrannical beast, aided by false and beguiling ideology, we see that Christians need to be very wise. We need to be very wise in discerning the difference between true and false prophets by paying careful attention to the word of God. We must also be wise in expecting to pay a price for our faith. All through Revelation, Jesus has promised salvation blessing only to those who persevere in faith and overcome spiritual warfare through their witness to him. John has a final form of wisdom in mind in this final verse. This is the wisdom that enables Christians to see the enemy for what he is and what he aims to do, so that we will not be fooled by his deceit or intimidated by his threats. In fact, the entire Bible bears testimony to the faithfulness of God in saving his people from spiritual attacks. Our wisdom thus calls us not to shrink back in our witness out of temptation or fear. John makes this point with the most well-known, most widely contested verse in this chapter. Revelation 13.8 says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Many commentators suppose that 666 is a code of reference using an ancient practice known as gematra. Languages such as Greek and Hebrew did not have numbers, so letters were assigned numerical values. Some single digits, others tens, and still others hundreds. The idea is that John is enabling us to identify the Antichrist or the first beast because the letters of his name in Greek add up to 666. And using this and other similar systems, Christians in recent years have argued that Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist, since each of his three names had six letters. The American statesman, Henry Kissinger, was long considered in a candidate for the Antichrist because his last name added up to 666 in the Greek system. 
Well, the problem is that this approach, from with this approach, is there's no limit to the number of Antichrist candidates. One commentator fancifully made a, a case for Barney, the children's television figure, since the words cute purple dinosaur yield the calculation 666. The person most commonly associated with 666, speaking of that, is the Roman Emperor Nero. By translating the name Caesar Nero into Hebrew, the letters add up correctly, so that some scholars see John 666 as a code name for Nero. The point is, let like him, the beast will be a popular but depraved despot who launches violent persecutions against Christians. Well, the problem with this approach is that John's readers, including Greek converts, likely didn't speak Hebrew, which this theory requires. Moreover, once one must significantly misspell Caesar for the numbers to add up, these factors make the Nero theory unlikely. A better approach to unpacking this number is to understand the symbolism of six. We have often encountered seven in Revelation as a number of completion and perfection. And yet six falls short of this number. It's imperfect, it's incomplete, and it's defective. This describes fallen mankind, which is why John says that this is the number of man in Revelation 13.8. The dragon and his two beasts set themselves forward as a fake divine trinity. God's judgment and Christ's victory will reveal them as a, as a triple fakery and a threefold failure. G.K. Beale says this, six repeated three times indicates the, the, the completeness of sinful incompleteness found in the beast. The beast epitomizes imperfection while appearing to achieve divine perfection. It turns out that the, the word beast in Greek from the, the word theron calculates to 666. And interestingly, the name Jesus calculates to 888. If this was at least part of John's message, the meaning here is clear. Whereas Jesus superbounds in perfection 7 plus 1, the beast falls short as a defective imposter 7 minus 1. And from this point of view, John's meaning seems to be that while Christians need to know about the two beasts, we should not take them as seriously as we're tempted to do. And yes, they dominate this present age of the world and are able to persecute us. But the end, the beast is doomed for failure and judgment in the lake of fire, Revelation 19.20 tells us. Whereas Christ's reign will be eternal, the beasts are mortal. And in the long run, their reign will be seen to have been short-lived, permitted by God only so long as it served his purpose in judgment and redemption. Those who bear the mark of the beast partake of the failure that his name and his number imply. Those who reject the beast, even under persecution, and hold fast to the perfect name of Christ, will partake of his character and of his blessing. One man who became wise to the beast was Boris Kornfeld, a doctor in the labor camp operated by the Soviet Union. A Christian told him of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Kornfeld was convicted of his sin, especially of his hatred for the guards and for the way that he had collaborated in evil. And he longed for the forgiveness that Jesus alone offered. And when the Christian was transferred, Cornfield turned to Jesus in faith. For some time he told no one of his conversion. And yet his new allegiance required him to refuse to engage in corruption, and he began doing what he could to protect the weak and the afflicted in the camp. Well, one night Cornfield was helping a, a patient who was recovering from a painful cancer operation. He decided that he would no longer keep silent by fear of the communist authorities. 
the words began spilling out. He told the story about coming to faith in Christ alone, how God's grace had changed him. After bearing the testimony and putting the patient to sleep, Kornfeld went to his nearby room for the night. While he slept, he was attacked. His skull was crushed by a hammer blow, and he died for refusing to serve the beast any longer. Did Kornfeld's witness matter, and was his commitment to Christ worth losing his life? The answer is given by the patient who heard his last words. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who later wrote Kornfeld's prophetic words were his last words on earth. And directed to me, they lay upon me as an inheritance. He realized that the mark of the beast can be renounced for the saving seal of faith in Jesus Christ. He pondered the witness and ultimately believed in Christ, was changed by the grace of God, and began walking in faith. In the years to come, Solzhenitsyn's writings would shake the communist system. His famous book not only disclosed the beastly inhumanity of the Soviet system, it gave light to many Christians of the hope of salvation in Christ alone. John says that that understanding that we are opposed by the deadly triad of Satan, together with the tyrants and the false prophets who serve with him, it calls for wisdom among modern Christians today. The wisdom is not how to strike back at the beast with his own weapons, but how to boldly declare the gospel message of Christ. The wisdom is not how to evade the beast's tyranny, but how to persevere in Christian courage and commitment. Having the beast's number, knowing his limitations, and his certain defeat, we can live without fear of his assaults. Even when his hammer blows, can do nothing but send us into the loving arms of the victorious Christ. Knowing Jesus, calculating the infinite worth of his cross, trusting his perfection and glory and salvation, we are made bold to tell others about faith in Jesus Christ. John's intent is that that what the angel said of the victorious believers in chapter 12 would be said of us as we triumph in faith in Christ alone. Revelation 12:11 says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. You see, today all around us are challenges, very real challenges. And they call for boldness. They call for courage. They call for us to be men and women who stand by our convictions. You know what? Our convictions as Christians are shaped and molded. They they spring and they arise from the scripture. We do not need to fear Satan or his minions. We do not need to cower in fear. But we do need, as the Proverbs talk about, that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. The Lord is the one who knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He knows the length of our days. We cannot fake him out. He sees us. He knows us through and through. He is the one who has saved our soul. He is the one who is growing us in his grace. He is the one who will glorify us. He is the one who holds us fast in Christ alone. This is the one in the Lord Jesus who is soon to return. And as John's saying, this calls for wisdom. You know, what's needed in our day isn't just people that can answer theological questions, but people that Know the wisdom of God, personified in Jesus Christ. You know, that's that's where 
we need to ask, as the Proverbs say, we need to ask for wisdom and we need to get understanding. Both wisdom and understanding come from the 66 books that constitute the Word of God. You want to know how to stand against the, the, the Satan and his minions? Get in the Word of God. We, we, in fact, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. When Satan is taken away to be, you know, tempted by, or, or yeah, excuse me, let me say this again. When, when Jesus was taken away by Satan into the desert, there he was tempted. Jesus was tempted. What did Satan try to do? He perverted the scriptures. He twisted them to mean what they don't mean. Oh, that was so close to the right meaning. But Jesus gave the accurate meaning. Jesus saw through the facade. Jesus sees through the facade of false teaching. He sees through the facade of our hearts. In fact, you know what's interesting? We see this in the ministry of Jesus even with the religious leaders who were supposed to know the scriptures frontwards and backwards in every, every, in every way. And yet they got it wrong. You see, the same is true today. If we want to stand up and make a difference, we don't need to be like Major General Henning von Tresco and Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberger. We don't need to engage in deceit and deception. We, as Christians, are people of truth. We are people of the book. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I am what? The way and the truth and the life. When, when the, when the uh, apostles, Peter and John, preached that famous message that, that, it, that it, salvation is only found in Christ alone in Acts 4, 12, we need to understand that, that here they are. They're in front of the very religious leaders that had killed Jesus, who had crucified him, who had accused him of blasphemy and, and sedition and treason against Rome. And here they are, Peter and John, proclaiming the glory of the gospel. That in Christ alone, there is forgiveness of sins. In Christ alone, there is hope for them. That's the message that we have today. But it's a message we need to understand that comes from the source. It's not our opinion. It's not what we think. It's not what we feel. The scripture is truth. It is inspired. It's inerrant. It's sufficient. It's clear. It's authoritative. It's binding in our lives. It's trustworthy and reliable for the life of faith and godliness in Christ alone. So we don't need to engage in deception and deceit. We need to stand firm for the truth. We need to stand upon the word of God. This calls for wisdom. Standing for truth is, is, is the call of Jesus. Jesus often said in his ministry, count the costs and follow me. Come after me. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Following Jesus requires wisdom. You know, you might be a parent with a difficult child. They seem to profess faith in Christ, for example, and yet they seem to walk away. They don't give a care later in their later years. And you wonder, were they really saved? Were they really one of the people of God? Or maybe a family member does the same, and you wonder, what's, what's happening here? 
How do I reach them? How do I speak to them? This calls for wisdom. The wisdom of God's word applies to all of it. How do you speak to that difficult person in your Bible study, your small group, in your local church? It calls for wisdom. As the people of God, we have the word of God, but we also need to understand that we have one another. We're going to spend all eternity worshiping the Lamb before the throne of God, as we've seen throughout this book. But here on earth, we, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have struggles. Paul, Paul told young Timothy that you can expect to face persecution in this life. But here's the thing. As you're shaped and you're molded by the scriptures, you'll gain courage. You'll gain boldness. You'll gain conviction. Because God's word is taking shape, shaping you and molding you, growing you into the more into the image of Christ. And the more that happens, let's be honest, you will, you can't help but speak of Christ. You cannot but boldly declare the truth of his word. You cannot boldly help but boldly contend for the truth once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude 3 says, and as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And did you know that gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, which means this is all a work of the Spirit in our lives. This call for wisdom. In fact, James repeats this call in his, in his epistle that we're supposed to pray and ask God for wisdom. We need wisdom to live rightly, to speak truthfully, to walk humbly before our God in these days. And it's my prayer that you would join me in praying to that end so that we might speak the truth and love, season with grace, answering those who oppose the faith with gentleness, as Paul tells us in uh, 2 Timothy 2.23. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is it's living and active. It penetrates in the very heart of the heart of the matter and that you know us and you see where we are. We thank you, Lord, that in your word you've said that we're to ask for wisdom and that you will give it. So we pray, Lord, according to your word on that regard. And we ask, Lord, for wisdom. Wisdom to know how to speak the truth in love because we already know what we're, what we're to say. But, Lord, we need wisdom to know how to say it, to say it lovingly, truthfully, seasoned with grace, with gentleness and respect. And Lord, we know that you carry forth your word and power to the hearts of men and you irresistibly draw them to the truth of Christ. And so I pray if those who are listening today don't know you, that you would do that work, that you would carry forth this sermon into their hearts and minds and that you might use it as a means an instrument to open their eyes to the truth and to show them the deception of Satan and his minions. And that all around us, we are engaged in a very real war, but you have already won the war. For your work is finished and sufficient, and you are a soon returning king. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today in Christ, those who are yours, who enjoy friendship with you, adoption with you, who have had their sins forgiven and washed anew in the blood of Christ, 
who are new creations in you, indwelt and empowered by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would take this sermon and convict us of the many ways in which we say that we love you with our mouths, but our hearts are far from you. Lord, help us, help renew in us, as Psalm 51 says, renew in us a right spirit, a spirit of worship and adoration, a hunger and thirst, as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, for righteousness of God. Help us to abandon our apathy and help us to walk by faith in the grace of God through the indwelling and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Help us to care about our godliness more than our ministries. Lord, help us to be the kind of people that you want us to be shaped and molded by your word so that as we testify of the wonder of grace, people will see Christ in us. They'll see the shining light of Christ in and through our witness in Jesus' name. I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.